Amen. Father, we thank you for this morning and those words, yet not I, but through Christ in me, through you in us. Um, we're reminded, God, that everything is from you and through you and to you and for you. And so we pray, God, that this morning and this time that we have together in this place on this day, we pray that your name would be glorified. We pray that you would do what only you can do. We pray that you would set captives free. We pray that you would save people. We pray that you'd open blind eyes, that you'd awaken dead hearts. We pray that, Lord, you'd heal the brokenness in our souls because we can't touch it ourselves, but, Father, you are able. And so, Lord, I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be the glory and the lifter of our head, that you would take our heads and that you would lift them to look fully in your wonderful face, that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, that our eyes would be fixed upon Christ this morning. We thank you, Jesus, that you are risen. We thank you that you're alive. This day, right now, in this moment, you are alive. That all over the world, and we pray that it would be true here today in this place, that you would save people. That's what you're doing. You are saving people from their sins still. And we rejoice in that this morning. May that please be true among us today. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Oh, I don't know, Ephesians 1 maybe, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, will be in those places and many others. Um, so we're going through our doctrinal statement here over the summer. It's kind of summer doctrinal series that we're doing today. We are uh, going to be talking about the doctrine of salvation, or as it's more formally stated sometimes, uh, soteriology. Um, and I'll explain after a little bit why, why we call it that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this expression. I asked the interns on Friday if they'd ever heard this expression, and they all looked, with me, looked at me with kind of a blank stare. Um, so even if you haven't heard this little saying, trust me, it's a saying, okay? Um, but if a child asks what time it is, you don't have to take the watch apart to answer his question. Has anybody ever, ever heard that before? Okay, nobody. It, trust me, it's a thing. People say it. Um, somewhere, just not here. But if, if a child asks what time it is, you don't need to take the watch apart to answer the question. Now, the point simply being is that we don't always have to overcomplicate things. However, I think that that image is helpful because the large part of what I'm going to spend the time doing today is taking the watch apart. I'm going to spend our time together showing you um, how our salvation works, okay? What actually happens in salvation and not only in salvation and kind of like the process of how we became saved, whether we understood it or not, or whether we understood the, the inner workings of the watch working, of how it was working. I'm going to try to show you that this is what the Bible says about our salvation. But I don't want to confuse that with just simply being able to say what time it is, i.e., just state the gospel. The gospel is simple. And even chi a child can understand it and also, and also share it. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you probably have the most succinct synopsis of the gospel anywhere in the scriptures. Again, it's, it's more than this, but it's, it's not less than this. What's stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. This is what you might call the, uh, the gospel proper. 
okay? Um, <laughs> there are some essential elements here. Paul says this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here was the message. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There are some essential elements there. Okay, The essential elements of the gospel are sin, Christ, the cross or his death, as Paul mentions there, resurrection and a call to faith, belief or trust in that message. Um, here I wrote, again, you, don't, uh, you can say this different ways with those elements, but let me read to you a little synopsis of the gospel that I jotted down earlier this week. It said, the gospel is the good news that we can be made righteous before an almighty, holy God and have eternal life. Every single one of us, you see, has been born sinners, which means we have broken God's law and have chosen to live independently of him. We talked about this last week for those of you that were here. And therefore, we are guilty and we deserve, we deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, died in our place on the cross as our substitute, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sins. But Christ not only died for our sins, he also rose again on the third day, triumphing over Satan, sin, and death, and proving that he lived a sinless life of perfection that God the Father finds acceptable on our behalf. The only way to receive this gift of righteousness and eternal life is by faith. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, but rather eternal life, acceptance, and joy for those who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so the Bible commands, doesn't just urge, doesn't just encourage, the Bible commands everyone everywhere to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ for salvation. Because if you die apart from trusting him, you will be separated from him and punished for all of eternity. That, that's the gospel. And Going back to my early little analogy saying about the watch that nobody ever seemed to hear before, that's, if somebody asks you what time it is, that's what you say. Something along those lines that you speak of sin, Christ, the cross, his resurrection, and that it's only to be received by faith and trust in him. This gospel, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And so right from the beginning this morning, if you were here this morning and you do not know where you would spend eternity, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't just encourage you, but I would urge you, I would plead with you, and I would say that the Bible commands you, trust in Christ. Trust. Trust in Christ. Um, <clears throat> but now I want to I turn to showing you how the watch, how the clock actually works. I want to take it apart. For those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, um, it is important that we understand the depths of this salvation. And even as I say that, as we understand the depths of our salvation on, 
on one hand, I, I don't know that we ever fully can, but we need to try. Because the Bible talks a lot about it, and it talks about things that are amazing. Um, listen carefully to what I'm going to say here. Is that the more we allow the Bible to give us categories for understanding our salvation, the more we will stand in awe of our salvation. Let me say that again. The more we allow the Bible to give us categories for understanding our salvation, the more we will stand in awe and marvel at our salvation. So what do I mean by allowing the Bible to give us categories? Well, for those of you that have been tracking with us through this doctrinal series that we've been doing this summer, we started off speaking about the Trinity, okay? If you come to the Bible trying to fit what the Bible teaches about the Trinity into your own categories, you will not understand it biblically. That Father, Son, and Spirit, they are completely separate persons, yet they are also completely one being, okay? Our natural minds cannot grasp that, but we allow the Bible to give us that category. In regards to the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we spoke about several weeks ago, he is not half God and half man. He is fully God and fully man. He is truly God and truly man. He is the God man, that God has existed in all of eternity past. Like, so we might come with our natural minds because everything that we know in our natural categories is, well, everything has a beginning and everything has an end. Not so with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We allow the Bible to give us the categories we need to understand our God. And in the same way, what I'm going to argue for this morning and just simply try to show you from the Bible is that we need to allow the Bible to give us categories to understand our salvation. Okay? And as we do that, I believe there's a reason for it. I don't, don't think it's, it, it, it's pointless. Um, the reason for it is so that we would be amazed and worship our God with all, with all that he deserves. If you've got your little handout here this morning, let me start by just kind of reading the uh, doctrinal statement. This is, the, again, the formal church doctrinal statement um, on soteriology or salvation, as we've been doing every week here. Let me just begin by reading this. It, the first sentence, we believe salvation belongs to God. That's a direct quote out of the book of Jonah. Okay? Again, I'm, I'm trying to show you that these things we've why do we say things the way we say them? Because that's the way the Bible says them. We believe salvation belongs to God. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> salvation belongs to him. The next line, okay? Probably the thorniest one that makes people question, okay? Uh, what we mean by this, and this is what I want to try to unpack for a while. Second sentence. He, being God, sovereignly chooses people out of the world to be his children and to fellowship with him forever. Now, to be more specific, they don't, people don't just stumble over that sentence. They mainly stumble over one word in there, and that is the word chooses. The word chooses. That God sovereignly chooses people out of the world to be his children and fellowship with him forever. Eric, why do you say it like that? Here's what I want to show you, because that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. So let's go. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. <coughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose. That's where we're getting it from. Just one place. I'll show you many this morning. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Now this word for chose here, it's sometimes the, the verb form of it as, as is here is translated chose. It's the same Greek word, uh, eklektos or eklemaia. Uh, that sometimes is also translated in the English, in our English Bibles, as the word elect. That's just simply the noun form of the same word. So he chose, the noun form is the elect. God will speak of the elect. And it says here that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Then verse 5, he predestined us. Another word in this in entire conversation of predestination and election and choosing, um, you'll see this, this word goes along with it. Predestining simply means to mark or to, to, to destine something means to mark out and to predestine just simply means to mark out beforehand. Okay, that's what the word means. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you jump down to verse 11, you'll see similar language. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Okay, again, marked out beforehand. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, so we talked about the sovereignty of God at length, I believe when we spoke about the Father in week two of this doctrinal series, talking about his sovereignty over all things. So we're not talking about anything different. Here specifically, though, we're talking about his sovereignty in salvation. So when we say God sovereignly chooses people out of the world to be his children and to fellowship with him forever, if you were here last week, we are not by nature his children. We are by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, if you just want to skip across the page there, if you've got your Bible open to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, we are not by nature his children. We are by nature objects of wrath or children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, and again this would have been from last week, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins in which, in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of all mankind. That was us. We were dead. We were enemies of God, but God in his mercy as it says back there in Ephesians chapter 1, chooses us in him before the foundation of the world. And now, and now here's, here, here's the language. And let me just say that I, it is not lost on me at all that what I'm doing here this morning is opening up a big can of worms and tossing them out into the congregation. That is not lost on me at all. But you have to deal with this. You have to wrestle with this. Okay, And everybody does. Um, uh, as you grow in your relationship with Christ, again, it doesn't stop you from sharing the gospel, telling people what time it is. But if you get down into the inner workings of the clock, this is what the Bible teaches, is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you have, and here, you'll think I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth, but I'm telling you the Bible says both, and I want us to allow the Bible to give us these categories, is if you respond, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you did that because he chose you. That's what it says. Again and again and again and again. I can tell I need to give you some more Bible though because you don't believe me. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 and 5. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, listen, for we know, brothers, love by God, that he has chosen you. 
Now, Paul is writing to new believers, and again, you'll notice the word chosen. That's why we use it, because the Bible uses it. He has chosen you. How do they know that? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not only in word. So everywhere Paul went, they were sharing the gospel with words, but not everywhere they went did they see it move in power and save people. And here's what he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the gospel is proclaimed, Romans chapter 1 verse 16, that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. It, the message itself, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Okay, As this message of the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit takes that message and he makes dead people alive. That is how it works. And Paul's simple response to that, Paul is not going around going, well, I think you're chosen, I think you're chosen, I think you're chosen, but these other guys aren't, and so I'm just going to preach to them. We preach the gospel to everyone, and everyone is commanded to repent. And if a person dies in their sin, not believing in Jesus, it is because they chose to reject the gospel. Every man is responsible for accepting Jesus Christ when he hears the message of salvation. And, it is, uh, and all men stand guilty. They're not neutral. All men, as I just read in Ephesians chapter 1, we are born sinners. Sometimes people will say, what about, what about the innocent person out in the jungle that has never heard the gospel? Surely God doesn't hold them accountable. And I would say, no, God wouldn't hold them accountable if that person existed. But that person does not exist. There are no innocent people. We are all born in Adam. We are all born sinful. And so you think, well, if all men are born sinful and God's going to hold every man accountable, it's really important that we go and take the message of salvation to them. Yes! Yes, you're getting it. Yes! The gospel has come to us that it might go through us. That the same God who is sovereign over the ends of salvation is also sovereign over the means of salvation. And the means that God has sovereignly ordained to save people throughout all time and history is the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel to people dead in their sins. On some level, on some way, shape, or form, this is how you came to know Jesus, is you heard the gospel. It might have been from your parent, it might have been from your mom and dad, it might have been from your grandma, it might have been on the radio, it might have been at a revival service, it might have been from a preacher, it might have been from a friend. Maybe you even just started reading the Bible and got it from there, but on some place, in some time and space, you heard this and the Holy Spirit awakened something in your heart to respond and believe. And for most of us, the case was, is that, like for me growing up, I heard this message And while I would have kind of acknowledged that it was true, and I wasn't really going to disagree with it, it didn't do anything in my heart until one day, about 22 years ago, I'm sitting in church on a Sunday morning, I think it was like the first or second Sunday in July of 2000, and I hear the message that I've heard heard literally like probably a thousand times before growing up, and that day, in that moment, as Paul put it about his own testimony, I would say the same thing about my testimony, the same thing about yours, in that moment, Christ God was revealed, was pleased to reveal his son in me. And in that moment when I heard the gospel, I came to life. And I responded by faith and I trusted in my Savior. Is that God did a miracle in my heart. That is how salvation works. 
And it is why we proclaim the gospel. It is why we preach the word. Let me tell you something. Each and every week when I stand up here, my hope does not rest in me. I guarantee you that. The majority of the singing down there on Sunday mornings, I sing about half the songs. The other half, I'm sitting there just praying, saying, God, please help me, please help me, please help me, please help me. Listening to the rest of you sing. But let me tell you where else my hope doesn't lie. My hope every week when I stand up here does not lie in you. It does not lie that you will somehow just make the right choices. Because we don't. My hope lies in that Jesus Christ will do a work in your heart again and again and again and again and cause you to love him. And if you are here this morning and you don't know him as your savior, my hope is that he will lay hold of your heart this morning and cause you to love him. Because if you don't know him as your savior, you don't love him. That's the essence of our sin. Salvation is a miracle. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Again, just listen to the language. Listen to what the Bible says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God. So who's he thanking? He's thanking God. We give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you. As the first fruits, listen, to be saved. Many times the argument people will make is that when it speaks of, of choosing or election, and it does in some part, in, in other places, but the vast majority of the times where the word chosen or predestined is used, it's not just speaking about a plan or, just, or, or choosing for just for, for an assignment. He is speaking directly about choosing for salvation. Okay? And again, this is, this is a hard one to get around. Uh, if you don't think that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God chose you as the first fruits for what? To be saved. To be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The Spirit is working, sanctifying you, pulling you, pulling you apart, and responding in faith through belief in the truth. To this he called you. We didn't call ourselves he called us. How? Through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it God? Is it work in us? Long before um, we are ever seeking him, he is seeking us. In John chapter 6, Jesus um, Speaking in the same kind of vein, I suppose you would say, John chapter 6, let me read another passage here at length, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not, that, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the gospel call. Let me say it again this morning. If you are here and you do not know Jesus, look to the Son. Look to him. Trust in, in him. 
Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. Listen to the next verse, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I want to argue also, if you'll jump down to uh, the bottom of your page here on affirmations and denials, that the Bible even states explicitly that even faith itself, true saving faith, again, not just mental assent, man can mentally assent to the facts of the gospel, but a wholehearted faith and trust that not only acknowledges that Jesus is real, but loves him, but loves him, that even faith itself is a gift from God. The affirmations we have, we affirm that people are saved wholly of God's sovereign grace and that even saving faith itself is a gift from God. Where am I getting that from? Well, let me show you a couple places. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. says, For it has been granted to you, that, not, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Look at it again. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you. In other words, it, it, it's gift. This has been given to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. Paul is saying, it has been granted to you as a gift to both believe and to suffer for Christ, that even the belief itself is a gift. Now, when you're like, was well, that really what the word granted means? It's actually a very strong word. The word for grace in the New Testament is the word uh, charis, is the word for grace, the Greek word for grace in the New Testament. This is just, again, a verb form of that same word. It's the word charizomai. It, it, it's, it's literally, it has been graced to you that you might believe in him and also suffer for him. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, again, a very another, another very strong statement. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Listen to how Luke comments on the preaching of the gospel that had been happening in this town and how the people respond. Listen to how Luke puts it. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And you're like, Eric, surely that's not what it says. Surely, it me surely what Luke meant to write was they believed and so they were appointed to eternal life. I'm telling you, folks, that's not the language. It's very clear. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The same word, uh, I believe it's teleos in the Greek, the same word for, that's translated appointed in the English, the same word is used in Acts chapter 15. It says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. Now, it's not talking about salvation there, but the point is, is that you can't switch it around. Like that, that verse says, Paul and Barnabas and some, some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say they went up to Jerusalem and then they were appointed. In the same way, you can't flip it in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You're like, Eric, is this, is this really true? And, and then the other question you might be asking is, why does the Bible teach this? 
Why is this in the Bible? The Bible gives us an answer to that question. The Bible is very clear on why it teaches this. Here's the answer. So that no man may boast. That's why. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, you go around talking about sin and Christ and the cross and the resurrection and trusting in this message that this happened 2,000 years ago and that this, this God-man, Jesus Christ, has been raised from the dead. People hear that, and in their natural selves, they do not accept it. it is, it's folly. It is foolishness to them. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Again, what was my point? Man will not boast before God. Even the choice to choose him, he says, you chose me because I first chose you. That's why. Paul continues on here. Again, just listen to the flow of thought. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. If I could just stop there for a second and and just unpack a little bit of what Paul's saying. He's like, man has always been coming up with different ways to try to please him. Man knows deep in their heart that they're guilty, and so we come up with religious systems and little things that we're going to do and little merit systems where we do this and we're a little bit better than these people because these people don't play our little game. They don't do what we do, and so, but, but we do it, and so God loves us a little bit more. And, and then you have that, that expressed in a bazillion different ways, Christian and quote-unquote Christian and non-Christian throughout the ages. But God says, that means nothing to me. I will have people preach, I will have men preach Christ crucified. Christ dying on the cross, taking the penalty that men deserve in himself. And I will be pleased through that message, through that foolish message to man, to save people. He goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and again, hang with me here. Listen, I'm, uh, it, it's coming to a head. It says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26, for cons- and, and listen how personal he makes it here. Again, he's speaking to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were, they were a pretty wild bunch, okay? Um, if you read some of the issues in the Corinthian church, people were getting drunk at the communion table. Um, there's immorality going on. Uh, their, their church services were complete chaos. Um, they just had a lot of sin issues, okay? Um, but they were also pretty arrogant about it, which is something Paul addresses here. And, verse, and how does he address it? He addresses it by reminding them of how they came to know Christ. Verse 26, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, if I could just 
God wasn't getting a deal when he saved you. And here's the thing. If you think that's just true for the Corinthians and not true for yourself, you don't understand. You don't understand. God didn't get a deal on any of us. Verse 27. Again, please just listen to what the Bible says. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And again, what is he talking about in the context? He is talking about the Corinthian people themselves. And I would argue the same is true of us. God chose, God chose, God chose. Verse 29, why? So that no human being, not just the Corinthians, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he's going to make another strong statement just because he knows that we don't get this. Verse 30, and because of him, and the him there points to God, the Father, listen, because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. Well, what, why? Because he chose you. Even if you disagree, do you see where I'm getting this from? That every mouth may be stopped. Absolutely, positively, on some level, in some way, we made a choice in our volition to maybe we raised a hand, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer. I, I don't know what it looked like specifically for you. You responded. And you are called, as I've said a lot already this morning, the Bible commands you to repent. All I'm saying is, is that the Bible also teaches, again, allow the Bible to give us categories for this, is that when you respond, if Christ is truly in you, it's because of God, not you. Can I get an amen? Maybe. The sovereignty of God and salvation, his free sovereign grace, is a wrecking ball to the pride of man. Um, I emphasize it, especially here, here this morning, because I, it's not that I don't think that we're called and commanded to choose to believe in Christ. But nobody really argues that. But everybody argues this. And we're just skimming the surface here, where again and again and again in the Bible, the Bible speaks this way. Because the biblical writers and, of course, God and the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures want it to be abundantly clear that in the end, when we stand before God in eternity, for those that know him as our Savior, I, I will not say, you will not be able to say. And again, not you're like, well, I'd never say that. You won't even be able to say it. You cannot say, I made the right choice. 
I want you to think for a second, for those of you that grew up in church, again, not everybody did and that's okay, um, but many of us did. Was there anybody that you grew up with in church that you used to sit with, maybe in the same pew, and today they are not following Christ? They do not see Christ as beautiful. They do not see Christ as their savior. They do not see Christ as lovely. They do not see Christ as worthy of receiving everything that we have to give but you do, why is that? It's because of God's grace. And I can't explain it, I, but the Bible from beginning to end teaches that this is true. This quote on here, halfway down your page from Charles Spurgeon, he's speaking here of both these concept of God's sovereignty in salvation and also man's responsibility. He describes them as parallel tracks that run to all of eternity. And Spurgeon, as he usually did, and there was a reason why they called him the Prince of Preachers, um, describes it very eloquently, and I would wholeheartedly agree with this quote. He says that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. Now listen to this part especially. He says, these two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. Um, Again, allowing the Bible to give us categories for how this works. And again, throughout history, very quickly, just right above that, the Belgic Confession. Just the first line in there, I won't read the whole thing. But here's how they put it back in the day. They said, we believe that to attaineth the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost kindleth in our hearts an upright faith. The Holy Ghost kindleth in our hearts in upright faith. Um, if you look down at the first line there of the Westminster Confession of Faith, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. Let me give you another verse on that one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. Paul's instructing Timothy here that he, can't, he should not get uh, frustrated with his opponents, but that he should continue to teach them with patience. And he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Listen, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That even repentance, and again, I would argue that faith and repentance always go hand in hand. They qualify each other. There's no, it's not true repentance if there's not also faith in Christ, and there's not true faith in Christ if there's not also repentance, a turning, a wanting to turn away from what other gods we were worshiping. But even repentance is also 
uh, a grace gift from God. All, all these things are found in Christ. Um, it is in our union with him that everything else that we need for salvation flows. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a second, and if I can just kind of use this to launch off into kind of another thought here, um, again looking at verse 29 and 30, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ. I want to talk for a little bit as well too about what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be in Christ is that our salvation from beginning to end is about union with Christ. We're not just trusting in a generic grace. We're not just trusting in a generic forgiveness. We're not just trusting in the idea of redemption or reconciliation or that we can be washed or cleansed. We are trusting in a person, in Jesus Christ, the God-man that came and died 2,000 years ago. Um, And the Bible, especially in the New Testament and Paul's writings, he continually talks about Christ being in us, but us also being in him. Um, In small church this past week, we were going through Ephesians chapter 2. Again, I'll jump in on verse 4 because I already read verses 1 through 3. But just listen. After he talks about that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us, again, he is the one acting upon us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse six, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that we were dead, that God made us alive, and now we have been raised up with him. And again, if I can just press the importance of allowing the Bible to give us categories to understand our salvation, and you've probably heard me say this before, but this is one of the places where I would get it from, is that it says not present tense, we will someday, but past tense, we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that just like Christ is seated right now at the right hand of God, but also lives in our hearts by the Spirit, in the same way we are here physically, in Berlin, Ohio, at the Amish Country Theater, but positionally we are also seated at the right hand of God in heaven with Christ, that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If I don't allow the Bible to give me a category for trying to understand my salvation, I cannot fully understand it. Colossians chapter three. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, again, past tense, have been raised, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Listen, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. (coughs) Going going back to Ephesians chapter 1 where where he talks about how he chose us in him. Is that Christ is the context through which we are saved. So in the same way Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. There's no salvation except coming through Jesus. It is through Jesus that God chose us, that he died for us. And it's when we understand our union with him 
that all these other gifts of forgiveness, reconciliation, all these things, they flow, they flow to us. The Bible describes our union with him. And again, we've looked at this over the last couple months. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home, it describes it as vine and branches. It describes it as a body and a head. And it describes it as a husband and a wife. And the, the importance of understanding this union with Christ, here, here's, here's why it's important. Okay, if I could just make it personal, like for my own life, is that I, I grew up in the little Baptist church over here in Berlin. Okay, and growing up, I, I, I heard the gospel, and I suppose I believed it to a degree, uh, but, but here's what I know was not true of my life is that even though I would have said I'm saved, even though I would have said I'm forgiven, even though I would have said I'm redeemed, like I even heard some of those terms and understand them, here's, here's what I didn't have I did not love Jesus. I didn't love him. Of course I didn't want to go to hell. I mean, does anyone? But I didn't love Jesus. And I would have tried to claim those terms as true for myself without loving him. But those things are not found apart from him. They are only found in Christ. It is why we preach him. J.I. Packer puts it like this in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says there's two major mistakes we need to avoid in sharing the gospel. One is that we should not present the person of Christ apart from his saving work. And then secondly, is that we should not present his saving work apart from his person. Here's what he says. He says, the object of saving faith is thus not, strictly speaking, just the atonement, but the Lord Jesus Christ who made the atonement. We must not, in presenting the gospel, isolate the cross and its benefits from the Christ whose cross it was. For the persons to whom the benefits of Christ's death belong are just those who trust his person and believe not upon his saving death simply, but upon him, the living Savior. This is why I'll ask you from time to time, and it's not me judging your heart. I don't know. I'm asking you to truly, with sincerity, ask yourself. Is it, I don't care if you grew up in church. I grew up in church. I didn't love Jesus, so I know it's a thing, okay? Right? But I ask you, do you love Christ? And in me saying that, I'm not arguing for, yes, I always love him perfectly with all my heart. No, we're still sinners. I understand that. But do you love Christ? The Bible says that his love for those that have trusted him has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And our union with him is our, great, is our great hope. This is what God chose for us. We were talking about union with Christ at small church, like I said, in Ephesians chapter 2 on uh, Wednesday over at Zach and Katie's house. And it was kind of a, I don't know, off-the-cuff uh, illustration. Um, but it's all I had to work with there is Katie had coffee and in a little butler thing that we could pump at the table. And she also has some heavy whipping cream. Anybody use heavy whipping cream in their coffee? It's a game changer, I'm telling you. I'm not saying it's the healthiest thing, but it's a game changer. And then she also had a couple spoons there to mix the stuff with. And I just picked up the spoons. And I said, many of you guys, I, I said, we, we tend to picture, myself included at times, our union with Christ as just these two spoons being held together. But the problem is that it just... We're afraid that they're going to drop and then they fall apart. But I said, that's not what union with Christ is. What God has done for us is, and I pumped some coffee, and then I poured some cream into it. 
And I said, good luck undoing that. Because <laughs> you can't. And that's our union with Christ. And, and this is why, guys, this is all I'm talking about is this is ultimately such good news. Is that God chose us in him to be united with him before the foundation of the world and in him that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, he predestined us for what? For adoption as his sons and daughters through Christ Jesus. And in speaking of this great salvation this morning, um, to not speak of our union with Christ would be to miss the whole thing. John Calvin, who is usually stereotyped as kind of a crusty old guy um, from history past, said this, speaking of union with Christ. He said, for my own part, I am overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery. And I am not ashamed to join Paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration. Whatever is supernatural is clearly beyond our own comprehension. Let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of that intercourse. And what do you, again, if I could just paraphrase that, we look at the Bible and we look at all it says about how God has worked in Christ to make us one with him and to save us. But let us live every day being amazed by it and not take that for granted. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. I literally have two more pages of notes with five more technical terms that I want to share with you. <laughs> um, but we don't, we don't have time. Maybe I can run through them quickly. <laughs> Speaking of being in Christ, those things that are found in him, we're forgiven. It's a, it's a technical word that means a debtor has received a cancellation of his debt. The Bible says we're adopted. It's a technical legal word speaking of somebody that was an orphan being made a child. The Bible says that we're reconciled. It's the idea of enemies in a court or enemies in a war. And they're no longer enemies. They're at peace and not just at peace, but they're friends. The Bible says that we're redeemed, that it's the idea of being set free, that we once were slaves, slaves to our sin. But in Christ, we've been redeemed, and we've been set free. And all these things, and many more, are only found in Christ. They're only found in Christ. And so again, as we close, I just want to share with you the good news of the gospel. Is that right now, today, if you're an enemy of God, you can be made his friend. You can be reconciled. You can be redeemed. You can be adopted. You can be forgiven. You can be justified if you will just trust Christ. And for those of us that know Christ and for those of us that call Mercy Hill home, 
the one great takeaway from all this, and again, I, we just don't have time, but one, I'm gonna say they're one thing, but they're really two things, but they're also one thing. What should we do in response to what I've talked about this morning? Like you listen to all this, you say, Eric, so what? Here's, here's the so what. Pray and preach the gospel. Why do we pray for people's salvation? Has anyone ever prayed for somebody's salvation? Yes? Why do we do that? Because God can save them. Our hope is not in them. It's in God who saves them. Why do we preach the gospel? Because this is the means that God has ordained. I believe, again, many times when we talk about these, these big ideas of choosing and predestination, and again, I hope I've been fair in admitting that there's mystery there with how it works with our responsibility to choose. But for some reason, and I, I mean, I know why, but, but for some reason, um, people always come away from this discouraged. But if I could just try one more time <laughs> to let it be the most encouraging thing in the world to you, is that the fact that God is sovereign in salvation, and I, I believe that is the reason, one of the reasons why, continually in heaven, there's a party going on. Like right now, today, in this moment, heaven is rejoicing. Do you know why? Because all over the world, God is saving people. And the Bible says that when one sinner trusts in Christ, that all of heaven rejoices. And I believe that every minute of every day, until Christ comes back, and then it will be too late, Heaven is rejoicing because God is constantly, sovereignly saving people by his free, unmerited grace through the proclamation of the gospel and the prayers of his people. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, it says, And they, these people, gathered around the throne in heaven. They sang a new song. And what were they singing about? Salvation. And they would say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Again, all over the world, still happening. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So bow your heads and pray with me. We're gonna stand and sing a song. And again, not just sing about the Savior, but sing to our Savior. Lord, we love you. Thank you for today. I thank you, Jesus, that that's true. <laughs> that every day you are saving people. Every day you are doing what only you, you can do. Every day you are making dead hearts come alive. And Father, we ask that, Lord, we would live our lives with the joy and the confidence and the hope that comes from this promise. That as we pray and as we share the gospel, that you, we are going to see the salvation that you promised. Thank you for loving us. Help us to sing to you with all our hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.